Judges chapter 21. It's the last chapter in the book of Judges. We thank the Lord for sustaining us through this study and for giving us so many opportunities to look into his word. Judges chapter 21. This is God's holy word. He gives it to his people for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's give our attention to its reading. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, Who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah should certainly be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for their brothers, the Benjamites. Today one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left, since we have taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before, before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh-Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh-Gilead were there. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh-Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in the land of Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the rock of Rimon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared, but there were not enough for all of them. The people grieved for for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, With the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives, since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there is the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, to the north of Bethel, and east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem, and to the south of Livona. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the girls of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, then rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize a wife from the girls of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin." When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us a kindness by helping them, because we did not get get wives for them during the war, and you are innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. 
So that is what the Benjamites did. While the girls were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever noticed that in reading a lengthy book, a a novel or biography or something, you often hit a wall about halfway through and you lose most of the determination to continue. You kind of have to decide, sort of weigh the options. Think about what you've read so far. Has it been good enough to continue on? If you're anything like me, there are many half-finished books on your shelves and hopefully one day to be completed. Have you ever noticed that when you're doing a project, it seems to demand a lot more care and attention to detail towards the end, when you're fine-tuning and putting on the finishing touches, but the problem is that you start to get quite anxious to finish it. So you want to speed up the pace, but really what you have to do is slow down. We find in many areas of life that finishing well is extremely difficult. Finishing well is extremely, extremely difficult, whether in life, spiritually, some of the examples I used, many others we could name. So this is certainly no, no less true in spiritual matters. We've talked about the spiritual battle throughout the book of Judges of battling sin, putting sin to death, being aware of the dangers of sin, and acting accordingly. We need to kill sin, and we need to keep killing it, and it needs to constantly remain at the front of our to-do list. There's a really interesting passage all the way back in chapter 1 of Judges that I think tips us off to one of the main themes throughout all of the book, that if you don't complete the job, if you don't finish it and finish it well, particularly in regards to sin and and, sin, battling sin, killing sin, however we, we may want to put it. If you don't finish the job well, it will come back to bite you. It's like a weed, right? You can't hack it off at one of the stems. You need to uproot it. So Judges chapter 1 says this, and I think it, it tips us off to one of the themes that we see all throughout the book, and especially in this chapter. In Judges chapter 1, there are men from, uh, from the tribe of Joseph being sent throughout the promised land to scout out what's really going on and what kinds of enemies they have. So Judges 1, the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. The name of that city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. He showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. So they find this man from this city, Luz. They say, they, they cut a deal with him, which generally a bad idea in regards to what God has told the Israelites to do in cleansing the promised land. 
But they cut this deal with him because it makes sense in our own human minds. We find our own solution, go our own way. Well, this will work better. God's given us some general guidelines, but let me kind of fine-tune and tweak that. So they let this man go, and what happens is this man goes and builds a city, a new city, but it has the exact same name as the city they just destroyed. You see, if you don't address it completely, think about it in regards to sin, if you don't kill sin and keep it that way, it will come back. It will compound the problem. It will multiply, multiply the problem. So the book of Judges comes to a, a merciful close today comes to a merciful close, but it also comes to a hopeful close. As we've seen in in Judges, all throughout, sort of a a sermonic call to return to the Lord and the King of the Covenant. And what we find here in the last chapter of Judges is that there's only one King who can answer our deepest needs. That is the King who came to take captivity and make it captive. That is the king who came to take the imprisonment of sin and put it in prison. Judges reminds us on the whole that man-made solutions, that fighting sin with our own strength, with our own ideas, that finding our own way out, all of these things are futile and foolish. They're all recipes for disaster. So the call of judges... Even if the narrator could not see it clearly, the final call of judges is to give yourself to the work of the true king, who in him alone we find the power to conquer all of our enemies, especially the enemy within. A couple of things that we see in this chapter and as we sum up the the book of Judges as a whole. First is this, never lose sight of the culprit. Never lose sight of the culprit. In a book so strange... It makes sense that one commentator says, this chapter is the strangest of all. Now, some of you may dispute that after the chapter having to do with Jephthah and his vow, after Judges 20 and that horrible tragedy with the concubine. I would uh, largely be in agreement with you, but it is true that this is a strange end to a strange story. It's It's a tragic end to a tragic story. Again, this is a a call, almost a sermon given to the people of Israel. Return to the Lord with all your hearts. And one of the things that we've learned time and time again is that operating in unrepentant sin puts you in murky and almost impossible situations from which to escape. As you look back in your own life, if you're caught in a web of sin, you will often see a certain rightness and a certain wrongness to some of the paths and the roads that you often take. And that's what sin does. It makes things cloudy. It makes things murky in your life. Remember in the last chapter, the the great majority of Israelites agreed, we have to do something about this great injustice. What had happened? Well, this Levite and his concubine had gone into a city and they had experienced great danger and horrible injustice in, in that city, particularly, of course, the concubine was abused, sexually abused, and left for dead all throughout the night. In response to that, the the Levite slices up his concubine and sends the parts of her all throughout the land, and everyone is up in arms about this. What is going on? What has happened to our people? What has happened to our nation? And they all agree they need to do something about it. But because 
they have failed to act so many times before because they have allowed patterns of sin to be established in their nation. All of the ways out are rather murky, aren't they? So they're forced to believe this Levite, who himself is no upstanding person. We know throughout Judges chapter 20, we see the many ways in which he is acting out of his own interest, his low view of women and his concubine, his abuse of her, viewing her as property. But we see encouraging signs in chapter 20. If we, if we see repentance in the book of Judges, that's where we find it. If we see reliance upon God in Judges, that's where we find it. If we see persevering faith, that's where we find it. Yes, this is holy war in chapter 20. But it was holy civil, civil war. The Israelites were forced to look at one of their own tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, and essentially cut them off. God tells them to attack Benjamin. But we're not totally sure if they were supposed to completely wipe them out. That's one of the, the, the murky things about judges. Were they supposed to eliminate every single Benjamite? Is that what God wanted them to do? Well, we don't entirely know. Scripture seems to say that when God's people are engaged in holy war, you do wipe everyone out. But when they're turned inward, when it comes to eliminating the tribe of Benjamin, we're not totally sure. And the Israelites weren't totally sure either. There's a lesson in this for us, isn't there? There's a lesson about sin itself, that if it makes things murky in our lives, if it makes situations impossible to discern the right path out because of the way that it makes things cloudy, because of the way that it complicates things, should it not motivate us to keep sin away all of the more? Thomas Brooks, when he's writing to young men, he's challenging them to think about sin in all of these ways. It's like fire. It'll consume all of the good of your life. It's like a tyrant. We talked about that last week. Sin is like a tyrant. It's a king that wants to have you for itself. Brooks also says, think about sin as bonds and chains. It traps you. It hems you in. It keeps you trapped and unable to escape. He says, friends, you should always look upon sin as bonds and chains, as the worst bonds that ever were. All other chains are golden chains, chains of pearl, compared to those chains of iron and brass with which you are bound. Who can look upon these chains and not loathe them? and not work to free themselves from them? Who can look upon the, the imprisoning power of sin and not loathe it and not be working day and night to be free from it? One of the th- sad things about chapter 21 as it follows on chapter 20 is that Israel is not going to follow through with what they had started on chapter 20. Again, we can't really say whether or not they should have let the tribe of Benjamin die out with those 600 men, but we can say that their solution is twisted and wicked and sinful. The first thing that they've done is that they've forgotten the culprit. We see from the very beginning of chapter 21, rather than realizing and understanding how horrible their own sin has been, whether in light of the tribe of Benjamin of chapter 20 or in light of all that we've seen in Judges, they've forgotten the culprit and they now are blaming God. Verse 3, they're weeping and they say, why has this happened to Israel? In other words, why are we faced with the reality of losing an entire tribe amongst our people? This will 
weaken us. This will put us in a vulnerable position. This will be sad as we think about our brothers no longer being with us. Why has this happened? It's a silly question. Maybe your teachers told you in school there were no silly questions. Well, here's, here's an example of one. It's a silly question. Why has this happened to Israel? We know exactly why this has happened to Israel. A Levite went to retrieve his concubine. He was detained For a few days by his father-in-law, he set out late in the day, traveling at a time when he probably shouldn't be traveling. He refuses to stop in a couple other cities. He wants to get to Gibeah because those are Israelites in that town, and so he'll be treated well. He gets to Gibeah. He is not treated well. The men of the city surround the house where he is, demand that the Levite be given over to them for their sexual pleasure, mirroring Genesis 19 in the men of Sodom. In response to this, the Levite tosses his own concubine out to these men and they rape and abuse her all night and leave her for dead. The Levite, and we're never told whether or not the concubine is ever fully dead, but the Levite then cuts up his concubine, sends the parts of her throughout the land, and because of this, of course, the people of Israel are outraged. So they demand the tribe of Benjamin to condemn the actions of Gibeah, because those were Benjamites in the city of Gibeah. The Benjamites say, no, we're not going to condemn that. We're going to stand with our tribe. And so because of that, the people of Israel, minus the tribe of Benjamin, are sent into holy war against the tribe of Benjamin. God finally gives them victory over the tribe of Benjamin. They're left with 600 men hiding in the wilderness with no prospects of marriage for the future. That is exactly why it has happened. Nowhere do we see anything for which we could blame God. But the problem is that Israel's tone seems accusatory. God, why has this happened to us? In other words, why have you let this happen to us? Why have you brought this to, why have you brought us to this place? Israel has experienced the judgment and the chastisement of God, but when they're faced with the actual reality of their losses, all of a sudden now, they're not so sure that it's worth it. Think of a man who has a job, and for whatever reason, he sees the way that he goes about his job as unjust. He's been able to get ahead and make a lot of money, but he knows that it's been wrong, for whatever reason. Maybe he was cheating, maybe the job itself is something that afflicts his conscience. So he comes to the decision, I'm going I'm to quit, I'm going to find other work. Even if it doesn't pay as well, I know I need to find something else to do where I can serve God and honor him rightly. So it starts off okay. But then all of a sudden the bills start to pile up and the man remembers why he was making all of those compromises in the first place. It, he felt the ongoing pressure of his life and all of the compromises that he made were a result of that. It allowed him to get ahead financially. And now all of a sudden he's saying, well, maybe my decision was a little bit too rash. Maybe what I did was a little bit too extreme. I mean, I I, I threw my whole life upside down. And God really could not have wanted me really to do that. That's kind of like what Israel is doing here. God's judgment seems so harsh. Is this really what he wanted us to do? Does he want to cut off an entire tribe from our people? When we think that God's judgment is too harsh, When we start to think that the problems created by our sin might not actually be by our sin, what we're doing is we're greatly lessening the seriousness with which we view sin. We're also lessening the extent to which we view the holiness of God. 
If God's holiness is eternal, if it's at the center of our lives and the center of our minds, we will never look at our sin and say, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. We will never look at the saving grace of God and say, you know, I, I only needed a little bit of that. J.C. Ryle says this, Never does a person see any beauty in Christ as a Savior until they discover that they are a lost and a ruined sinner. Christ will not be beautiful if your sin is not great. Christ will not be beautiful if you do not view the lostness of your state as completely hopeless without God. So because of this, Israel has forgotten the culprit. And what we see tragically in the last chapter of Judges is that they begin to go down the very same road of the Benjamites in chapter 20. So first, remember the culprit. And secondly this, never follow your own solutions. Never follow your own solutions. Israel accuses God, basically saying, why have you let this happen to us? They accuse God, then they offer sacrifices. Because of the way that we view their tone, we're not surprised to find that God is silent in responding to them. God doesn't show up and say, well, here's what you do, like he did in chapter 20. That's a pretty, that makes a lot of sense for us, right? God looks upon the heart. He knew the heart of the Israelites as they offered these sacrifices. It reminded me, actually, of Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, God is giving an assessment of his people, and he says this, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Then he goes on for a few verses, and then he says what he thinks about their sacrifices and their religious festivals. He says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Bring no more vain offerings. See, God looks upon the heart. So he's not impressed with an outward religiosity that has no sincerity behind it. We're then not surprised that the Israelites, they offer sacrifices to the Lord, but they don't hear anything there, verses 3 and 4, so they immediately move to action. And what they do is they come up with their own solution to the problem, which of course is a problem in and of itself. They want to see Benjamin survive. We don't want to knock out an entire tribe, no matter what they have done. So they need to figure out what to do. They discover that there was one city that did not send any fighters for the holy war waged against Benjamin. It was Jabesh Gilead. This is an opportunity for them because, of course, they have made a vow. We're not going to give any of our daughters to the Benjamites, but we need to find somebody to marry them. So you see all of the moral compromises that they're making here. We don't want to give our own daughters to them. But we will sacrifice the lives of others so that our nation as a whole remains stronger. So what they do in chapter 21 is they wage a second holy war, much less righteous than the first in chapter 20, and they conveniently decide that they'll spare the virgin women and give them to the Benjamites as wives. This is a man-made, opportunistic, immoral solution. They seek to appear as though they're abiding by their oaths. Well, we made this promise to the Lord, so we can't go this way, but we can sort of remain outwardly faithful to what we said we're going to do and find all of these loopholes. The God who looks upon the hearts will look upon such action 
with fury and with wrath. The narrator tells us all that we need to know when he tells us that after they wage this holy war against Jabesh Gilead, they bring 400 captive women and they meet the Benjamite men in Shiloh. And in verse 12 it says, Shiloh in the land of Canaan. What's significant about that is this is the only time in all of the Old Testament, after the conquest, where any place in the land of Israel is said to be in the land of Canaan. What the narrator is doing is saying that Shiloh, which is the most sacred site for all of Israel at this time, right? this is the center of Israel, Israel's religious life, he's saying that Shiloh is a Canaanite town. He's saying that it's completely corrupted with a Canaanite mindset, with a Canaanite lifestyle, with a Canaanite standard of morality, all of the things that we've seen all throughout Judges. What's the problem with Israel? The problem with Israel and Judges is that they are a Canaanite nation that's becoming increasingly Canaanized by the day. So if Shiloh is Canaanized, the most sacred site in all of Israel, then it's all Canaanized. That process has run its course here by the end of Judges. And indeed, what we're seeing happen in chapter 21 is a Canaanite solution. It's wicked and it's sinful. It continues the themes that we've seen through Judges. The use and the abuse of women. Might makes right. The weak ought to serve the strong. If you're more powerful than someone, you can use them any way that you like. This is Canaanite living. It's not godly living. We've talked about that again and again and again. The doctrine of the image of God, going back to the book of Genesis and seeing the way in which God tells us from the start of the equal sacred value of all human life. Men, women, every tribe and tongue. But the picture only gets uglier with this man-made solution. What do they find? There's only 400 women in Jabesh Gilead. But now they've started down this road, so they need to continue down it. See, when you find your own solution, when you think you can get out of something on your own, it's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough to get you out of it. And oftentimes, you're going to have to make more compromises and more sinful decisions as you get down the road. So they scramble for a second supplementary solution. And they remember, oh, there's this religious festival in Shiloh. And there will be these daughters of Shiloh, which itself is a very interesting term. They'll be there performing some kind of religious cultic duty at this festival. Commentators are in disagreement about what this actually is, what festival this is. I think the biggest clue that we have, the narrator tells us in chapter 12, again, Shiloh is in the land of Canaan, so it's a Canaanite city. So we can assume that whatever this is, is probably something that's rooted in what God had told them to observe, some kind of Jewish religious festival. But it's deteriorated beyond recognition. This is going to be something that is corrupt, and whatever is going on is not going to be pleasing to God. So we don't know even what these these girls, what kind of duty they're performing here, but it's probably something rooted in a Canaanite religious tradition. But this provides them with, again another opportunity for a solution. So the Israelites go to the 200 men, yet to find a wife, and what do they say? Go and hide in the bushes. Lay low. Wait for an opportunity for your ambush to make your charge. Grab a woman 
for yourself, make her your wife, and take her home. What kind of a creature lies in wait in the bushes? An animal, right? And that's one of the themes that we've seen in Judges as well. Samson was himself like an animal, a man who followed every lust and every instinct that he had, not living according to virtue, according uh, to self-control, but following every base instinct. And here we see that mindset come full circle. Benjamite men lying in wait, taking women against their will at the instruction of the entire nation. This is what you should do, they say. They've all become something less than human. Animal-like sinners, almost, who lie in wait for their prey. This flips biblical masculinity on its head. Right? The Bible says that men are made strong so that they can serve uh, the women and children in their homes and in their communities. We're called to use our strength in the service of the weak, but in Canaan, the weak serve the strong. Which of those two has taken hold in the hearts of God's people? So what has happened here? After condemning the wickedness of the Benjamites in Gibeah, chapter 20, right? They're filled with all this righteous anger and engage in this holy war. After doing all of that, the Israelites cannot follow through. They cannot live with Benjamin going out of existence. So the way that they avoid that is telling these men who would not condemn the rape of the concubine in Judges 20, to go and forcibly take wives for themselves. Sounds almost like rape, doesn't it? The story began with Israel taking dead aim at their wickedness. But they could not finish, and so it's multiplied, because they found their own solution and cut their own path. In Old Testament law, Any city that becomes the site of holy war is to be raised, is to be burned and left in ruin as a reminder of God's judgment. But here we read that the Benjamites seize their wives, return to their homes, rebuild their cities, and live there. Almost like in chapter 1, where the, the man from Luz goes and rebuilds his city. It almost seems hopeless, right? And this is kind of the end of the, the, the way that judges ends in this way. Everyone does as he sees fit. And there is no king. No one does anything with regard to what is right in God's eyes. It's a fitting end, largely, to judges. Not much has been good. A lot has been bad. Judges has not been easy. But life is not easy. Judges has not been pure, but life is not pure. Judges has not been without complicated situations, but life is not without complicated situations. The beauty of a sad story and a sad end like this is that we know that this isn't the end. If you stop at the end of Judges, you say, boy, well, that nation is going to destroy itself. There's no way that it continues. There's there's no way that God remains with them. There's no way that God makes a way for them to continue to finish the mission that God has given to them. But we know that that is actually not what happened. Against all odds, God, by his grace, is the one who allowed his people to endure. God, by his grace, is the one who found a way. God, in his infinite mercy, is the one who forgave his people, and who renewed fellowship with his people. If you continue on into the book of 1 Samuel, what do we find? 
we find that God provides a king. First Saul, who himself is from the tribe of Benjamin, that doesn't work out, so he provides a righteous king, King David. You see, Israel was going to do anything to keep the tribe of Benjamin alive. At any cost. They intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. One of the men who emerges from the tribe of Benjamin is the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3. Remember, he's listing all of his credentials, and he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. So without this grotesque story, we would not have had the apostle whom God used to build the entire Gentile church, right? To write most of the New Testament, or at least most of the New Testament epistles. Paul is the descendant of one of these 600 marriages. And he will say, centuries later, thinking about who he is as a a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, before the law, blameless, of the tribe of Benjamin, he said, whatever gain I had... I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, all of it is worth nothing compared to Christ. And he proclaimed that message throughout the known world. And that message has changed the world many times over. And it's transformed millions of hearts and millions of lives. That's part of the hope of the book of Judges. Because it ends in such a hopeless way, but we know that that is not the end. And that's a reminder to us that God, in his grace, nothing is impossible for him. And when salvation seems impossible, that's exactly when God begins his work. So Paul will say in another place, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the saying is trustworthy, deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul was resolved in his life to always look at the sin in his heart and see it as the biggest problem in the world. See, he remembered the culprit. He never blamed God. He never looked at others and said, they're more fallen than I am. He always looked inward and said, the biggest problem is me. I am the biggest problem. That's the biggest threat to our existence, the biggest threat to our prosperity, the biggest threat to our happiness. It's not all of the problems that we see in the world. It's the Canaanite within your heart and mine. You think of all of the problems in the world, all of the sickness, all of the twisted wickedness, all of the evil that we see, all of the problems in the world. You know, today is the high watermark of slavery in the history of the world. You know, we think that we're so progressed as a human race, but we've never had more slaves than we have now. And the vast majority of slaves in the world are sex slaves. And a lot of that slavery is fueled by consumerism out of the Western world. So we think that we've evolved so much far beyond what we were, but really we've just forgotten the sinfulness in our own hearts. You think of all of the problems in the world, the twisted wickedness. Every sin that this world produces is a sin that lies right within my own heart. Given the right temptation and the right occasion, there is no sin that I am totally free from. That's how evil we can be. And unless God were willing to come and save that which was ugly, save that which was rotten, 
save that which was twisted and hard to look at, we would not be here. It's hard to read some of the chapters in Judges, isn't it? But unless God were willing to save those kind of people, we would not be here today. There's no escaping the ugliness of our world. And there's no escaping the ugliness that's in our own hearts. But this is the world into which Christ came. It almost defies reason and words to think to ourselves that someone so holy could have walked alongside and loved and taught and healed and touched those so defiled and so sinful. But without a God who comes into the messiness of history, into the messiness of our sin, we would be without hope. The gospel tells us two things, and Judges tells us ultimately two things. That we are more sinful than we ever could have imagined, but that in Christ we are more accepted than we ever could have hoped. That's the message of Judges. You and I are more sinful than we ever would have imagined, than we ever would have guessed on our own. But in Christ, you and I are more accepted than we ever could have hoped. That is the hope of the gospel. And so on the last day, will you stand before God without a king? Will you stand before God without a king when there is the king of kings who stands ready to accept all who come to him in faith and repentance? Would you live without any shame of this king so that one day he will not be ashamed of us? Judges seems, at first glance, like an ugly book. But it's a book of grace, and it's a book of hope. Because the only hope that is worth grasping onto, and living by, and trusting in, is the hope that endures even at the lowest points. That's true hope. And that's why Christ is the only hope for this world. That's why Christ is the only answer for the depth of the sin in our hearts. The narrator of Judges would say, come to the King of Kings and trust and abide in him. So I say to you today the same exact thing. There's a king who took captivity and made it captive. There's a king who took the imprisoning power of sin and put it in jail to set you free from the imprisonment of your sin. Trust in him. Live in him. And abide in him. Shiver at the sinfulness of your heart. But stand in awe at the beauty of the king. Let's pray. And so great God, we thank you and praise you. We are not adequate to to even approach these truths. And... Yet you have given us something so much greater. You call us to yourself. And you say that your son, the one who came as God himself, eternal and yet taking on our flesh, that he would come and walk alongside us and look into our eyes and look into our hearts. And he knew the depth of the rebellion there and yet he still went to the cross. And so we, we thank you for that message of hope, that message of the gospel, that it changes us. We thank you for giving us this book, Judges. We thank you that it's not easy to get through because 
There we are reminded that our lives are filled with many of the same difficulties, that our lives are filled and our hearts are stained with that same ugliness. And it's an assurance to us of the depths to which you will go to save, that the, you will reach down into the lowest pit and grasp hold of those whom you have made your own. So we thank you for your sovereign grace. May we live in light of the, the king's reign and look forward to one day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord as they see the king of kings and they realize the glorious work that he did and that he finished so that a wretch like me could be saved. We thank you and praise you for all that. In Christ's name, amen.